0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio,
1: broadcasting from the Martin studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us on our show today. We're going to talk a little about fertilizer placement and timing. These are very important things, obviously, so we'll get to that throughout the show today. As always, we're happy to take your phone call. Our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. Well, it's uh, it's good to be back on the radio. Had a little break because of New Year's and then a blizzard day yesterday. We got at our on our farm here two feet of snow, which at this time of the year, that's pretty much a record. I don't know of any time we've ever gotten a bigger snowfall, and certainly not in my lifetime. And when we look at how much snow we got here in January, um, we know this is our normally the month where we say, boy, we love doing meetings because it's really cold. We almost never get any precip at this time of the year. And so it's just unbelievably unusual to get much snow. And then, I mean, that amount is just, it's crazy. So anyway, things have been shut down here in our world for a little bit, and just a week ago we had terrible winds and all the roads are closed and everything, so been facing a lot of bad weather lately, and it's real easy at this time of year, as a farmer in the Midwest here, to get kind of depressed, because it's dark, it's cold, you're moving snow all the time, it doesn't seem like you're getting a whole lot accomplished, but I always tell people, just focus on the bright side, and first of all, we're already past the shortest day of the year that happened December 21st so the days are getting longer now and also if you didn't if you weren't aware of this like at least in our area the average coldest day of the year is coming up next week it's just a week away after that the days start warming up on average and I know we can still have some cold temps but we're going to be over the hill here after just a little bit and we just have to look forward to spring and believe it or not um Spring's around the corner. (laughs) Even if you're where we are and we've got many, many feet of snow, um, spring is going to happen. It's going to be here in some cases sooner than you think. So you definitely want to get ready, make your plans for, hey, what what kind of seed do I need to put in the ground? What varieties are going to be the best for me? How about the herbicide program and even things like fungicide and be thinking about insecticide and what your choices are. And then our topic today Fertility. I, I was, I just sent something out to a number of agronomists this morning and I said, other than tiling, if you have medium to heavy soils, there's nothing in my opinion as a longtime agronomist, there's nothing in my opinion that's going to increase a farmer's yield more than doing the fertilizer right. In other words, getting that soil fertility, the overall fertility plan right, that helps yield, which then ultimately helps your bottom line just tremendously so you look at the cost of fertilizer today and a lot of people go oh my goodness i want to spend all that look it's not about the cost it's about what it makes you and that's the key thing here and that's why placement and timing become such a big issue so like i say we'll talk about that throughout the show today but right now let's get to the ag phd mailbag
0: All right, Brian, I gave you a soil test there. This comes from Matt up in central Minnesota. And white mold, a big concern, both on irrigated, but surprisingly even more so on the non-irrigated ground with this grower. Uh, They've tried a lot of things over the last five years. They are doing four applications of fungicide during the reproductive stages trying to keep white mold out. They've tried COBRA in the past. They've tried CONTANS in the past haven't seen a lot of difference there, but they are willing to try Cobra again if we think it's worth it. But what really piqued the interest here is we were talking about manganese levels and guys with higher manganese availability and levels uh, were having better luck with white mold. So lots of questions around that as to what do we think about um, that that's making a difference. And then um, the last thing is they've got a long history of poultry manure and they've been using sunflower hulls as the bedding source. They're wondering if both of those things or one of those things is bringing in more sclerotia.
1: Okay, well, when I look at this soil test, it only says 72 parts per million on a P1 phosphorus test and only 163 parts per million for K— And that's only 3.9% base saturation K and a 10.7 CEC. So that's right on the border where we'd almost call this light soil. It's rare when we find light soil where we see lots of white mold. Now I get it if it's irrigated and that's fine. Now I assume this one soil test you sent us is from the spot where the white mold is the worst but I don't see how, I, I mean, it does not appear to me like there's been manure applied to this in the past. Our sulfur levels are low, boron's really low, copper's really low, zinc's really low, the sodium is really low. And a lot of times when we see well, lots of manure has been They may applied, have been
0: putting manure on, but they haven't overdone it. They sure haven't overdone well, it. Well, yeah, and that's my point.
1: Sample. So it, my, my point here is, is that impacting the white mold? Not from what I see on this soil test, it's sure not. So... What I would say, though, is it's DTPA tests on these micronutrients. We don't find that the DTPA is accurate at all when it comes to manganese. So we'd prefer to see a malic 3 test run on the manganese, and let's see what we actually have in that soil for a manganese level before we are going to tell you, oh, go apply a bunch of manganese. Now, if you want to just try a little bit with the planter or foliar or something, I mean, you can certainly do that. I will tell you on our farm, we've had white mold so bad that it's literally taken 100% of our yield on 90 plus bushel soybeans. So we know all about white mold. Yes, it stinks. I, I, I hate it. I, I am a big believer though in Cobra. And I'm not going to say it's going to solve all your problems, but would I use that in addition to everything else? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely would. Here's what we've been doing on our farm. We've really adjusted the fertility level. So first of all, you want to give the plant as much chance to succeed as possible. By having the right fertility, it's much healthier. Like your copper levels at 0.9, I'll... I'll promise you that's one of the reasons you're having such a white mold problem. You've got to get that copper up. Copper is the disease nutrient in the plant. Manganese is also tremendously important. But zinc, boron, all these micros, sulfur as a secondary nutrient, you got to get those up. But what we've been doing in our farm, getting all those up, then we spray cobra right before flowering, then we hit it with Endura right at R1. That makes a world of difference. Then we come with a combination of tops and dome about three weeks later. And then maybe another shot after that, we've really slowed down that white mold. Makes a huge difference. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at xiway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions.
0: If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plan, do you think you could cut your farm's fertilizer expenses? Maybe you could increase your yields. Why not both? I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're devoting two full days to our Ag PhD Soils Clinic this year, January 10th and 11th at the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the two most important days you spend in your farming career, and it's free. So register now at agphd.com. Back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio talking about fertilizer placement and timing. Man, if we had all the perfect answers for every possible situation, that'd be great because we know it makes a big difference where you put the fertilizer and what the timing is, it does come down to weather. It does come down to what equipment you've got. There are several different things there that your timing is going to be slightly different each year, depending on when the rains come and those types of things. So you're really playing the average here about, all right, I need to make sure I've got nutrients in place. I can't be late. So if you're in a situation like we are where sometimes it gets pretty dry here, we're dryland farmers and we farm in the western Corn Belt, you got to be ahead of time on, on getting nutrients out there or sometimes you just can't get them in. So we'll talk more about placement things and timing and certainly about nutrients as well. And we welcome your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's start with Nate Couliard with with uh, Sound Ag right now on the East Coast. Nate, how you doing? Good. How are you guys doing today? We're doing pretty well. We're, we're under a whole bunch of snow here, which honestly isn't all bad because at least we're going to have some moisture when we get to spring. That's right. That's right. That's some kind of sign there. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know it's different. You know, when you we we're talking about uh, the Delmarva area and you look at some of the different restrictions already on nutrient placement mm-hmm. and timing that that makes farming even more challenging.
4: Yeah, it definitely does. Um, you know, I, I, I have worked with so much in terms of nutrient management here on the East Coast, uh, specifically in Maryland and uh, in Pennsylvania. It's becoming a bigger topic as well. And, um, uh, talking about the four R's, uh, trying to get your fertilizer out there uh, right at the right times and get it optimally placed uh, so it's utilized by the plants and not running off into the bay. You know, it's always, always the name of the game here in this area. Um, so definitely a big focus around here.
0: You know, when you think about placement, it, it is challenging because I know for a lot of growers, they want to go no-till. And when you think about that, what are your options for placement? You've got to do something to inject some of these nutrients, especially phosphorus, down down into the soil and, and some of the others that are non-mobile. Uh, how do you do right. that? What What is the right placement there and how far into the soil do we need to be on some of these nutrients just to keep them safe?
4: Well, that's, that's a great question. I, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. What you said earlier about logistics can often kind of take control of, of, uh, the situation as far as what you're capable of doing, when you're capable of doing it. Um, and, uh, and how you can do that. And, you know, I know in our area, uh, chicken litter is such a common nutrient over here that's utilized quite a bit. Excuse me. And, um, you know, so you're going to still have a lot in this area. You're going to still have a lot that's broadcast on. However, uh, when you start looking at being able to be really efficient with uh, nutrient placement, you know, doing things exactly like you're talking about, getting it banded, um, you know, get, especially if you can inject it down in the soil, uh, you really increase that, that use efficiency of that fertilizer tremendously. Um so, uh, you know, a, a preferential way with all nutrients, in my opinion, um, is trying to get them in some kind of band uh, in the soil, even on top of the soil, you know, but down in, in the soil for sure uh, really helps uh, make that, that fertilizer more efficient for that plant. Um, and, you know, as far as getting it down in the ground, um, uh, right there, you know, being careful not to, not to, Place nutrients too close to your plants, too close to when they're germinating. Um, being cautious of those kind of things; those are all things to be cognizant of. So, you know, making sure your your planter that's set up to inject nitrogen on on a two by two scenario. You know, making sure you're actually far enough away from the seed. We're not burning those those roots that are coming out of the germinating seed. Um, but getting that stuff down in the ground, getting it close to where those seeds can the seedlings can grab those nutrients and uh, and start taking them up is is a really
0: big deal. Yeah, there are just so many things here that go into getting fertilizer at the right place at the right time that our, our crop can make mm-hmm. the most out of it. Uh, yeah, a lot, lot to talk about in this discussion, no doubt. Uh, Nate, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. been talking with Nate Couliard here with Sound Egg. Yep, sounds
4: good. Thank you very much, guys. You bet
0: got sean arthur with us right now who may have a couple ideas on the placement sean's with environmental tillage system sean how you doing
5: good afternoon i'm doing well today
0: all right uh, I, I was talking to a grower late last fall and he goes, okay guys, I just got set up to do strip tillage. I've got coulters. I've also got the option of using a shank. And he was looking at it this way too, of where do I need to place these nutrients? And, and how is it going to, how's my crop going to perform differently if I put it in one band with a shank versus putting it out there with coulters and getting it down in the soil? You're, you're the perfect guy to a- ask that question of, Sean, how, how do you do it?
5: Oh, I think, uh, when we think about putting fertilizer out there in the field, it just makes intuitive sense to put it in an area where the crop is going to be able to extract it. When we look at a corn plant, only, only about 3 to 4% of the area in your soil where the corn plant is growing is actually touched by the roots. Um, we've got root, root overlap. They go deep. But uh, really, the main uh, congestion of all them roots is right within a few inches of where the plant is placed or where the seed is placed. So we've got to make sure that we've got an ample amount of nutrients that's right there in that zone. And we also have to be cognizant of what can happen if we get too high of fertility rates right there. Uh, there's some fertilizers that can actually work against you by pruning roots or having a detrimental effect on root expression if we get things that are too high. So when we're thinking about creating a zone of fertility, we want it to be, have ample fertilizer out there, but have it evenly dispersed in a zone where the plant's going to have the most options to get to it. <laughs> so we can run a shank, we can run coulters. Uh, typically the coulter setup is what gives us the most robust mixing of all of that, that zone where we're going to have the, the roots expressed. Uh, we can get a zone that's uh, 8 to 10 inches wide, uh, getting down to a depth of uh, 6 inches with our uh, X row unit, or if we put the deep cog on, we can go even deeper than that, but it's still going to be a concentrated area right there where the the roots are going to be placed.
0: You know, one thing I think about, Sean, is which nutrients do we need out there? And when I look at plants and I I understand that they keep drinking in their nutrition, they've got to pull it in with water. If they don't find what they need, they drink more and drink more and drink more, and that can be a real problem. And especially in dry land farming, but really anywhere we're trying to be efficient with water use. Putting a mix of nutrients out there is kind of a big deal. I know you you guys have worked on this a lot, uh, delivering different nutrients, delivering uh, varying rates, all those kinds of demands that your customers have. Uh, what do you see now? What are what are some of the good technologies to get micronutrients and and NPK and sulfur and all these things put in the right place?
5: Well, first, I want to acknowledge you touched on a very important part. The fertilizer that we put out there doesn't directly go into the plant. It has to feed the soil, and then the soil is allowed to move it over into the roots uh, through water and through that water movement. But the fertilizer granules that we put out there aren't uh, directly going into the plant. That's an important concept to keep in mind because we need to make sure that we've got it into an area that isn't going to be overly dried out. Uh, We don't necessarily want some fertilizer on top of the ground because of volatility risk. So having it mixed into that zone is going to be the first step to be able to mix it in with the soil, allow that conversion process where that granule starts to break down and then attaches to the soil and then the water can move it into the plant. As we look at the different fertilizers that we can work with, uh, some of our growers will do a fertilizer blend uh, if they know... Uh, what map potash maybe some ams they want to be putting out there for a rate across their entire field Um, they can have it blended from the co-op put it into a a single tank and then uh, put the rate out there we also have the flexibility to have individual products um, uh, dispensed in variable rates as you go across the field so depending on what a grower's priorities are what they're doing with their fertility plan we've got the flexibility to match up with uh, basically anything that they can come up with Uh, We do have variable rate technology on each of our fertilizer tanks, so if we're thinking of a dry fertilizer setup, each of our tanks will have a hydraulic drive on there that has the capacity to either do a flat standard rate across the whole field, or we can tie it into the, the GPS systems to do a variable rate script so that we are matching the fertilizer rate with the needs of the field.
0: Yeah, that's exactly where we're heading with this, too. When we think about getting the right food in the right spot and the right doses, uh, variable rate application is going to be super important as we go forward. Uh, I've been talking with Sean Arthur Certainly here enough. with Environmental Tillage Systems. Sean, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yep. We're talking fertilizer placement and timing, and we're taking your calls and agronomic questions, too, at 844-44-AG-PHD.
2: Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage.
6: Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, a Morton machine storage or workshop is built to stand the test of time. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com.
0: Get the most out of every acre of your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting several free workshops throughout January and February with seven full days of events on the docket, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, a tiling clinic, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information that we can't wait to share. And best of all, these events are free. Register today at agphd.com.
3: Think ahead to planting. Schedule your planter inspection with the experts at CNB. Make sure your equipment is in top shape and ready for the field this spring. CNB is your local John Deere dealer offering expert service and customer commitment. Learn more or schedule your appointment online today at Deerequipment.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator closing wheels from Farm Shop MFG.
2: And now when you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. Offer good while supplies last, so order yours today at FarmShopMFG.com. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient Triafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Xiway brand fungicide success stories at xiway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions.
0: How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market, claiming to improve soil health and plant development there's a lot to sort through. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Thursday, January 12th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. The weeds are coming, the weeds
1: are coming. Hey, All repair. This whole midnight ride thing is getting really- But the HPPD resistant weeds are coming.
0: We've got Verdict herbicide. Verdict herbicide? Yeah, it's a non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide from BASF. Well, well then, get some sleep.
7: Yeah,
2: will do. The weeds are coming! Switch to Verdict herbicide! Always read and follow label directions!
0: You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about a really important topic here, fertilizer placement and timing. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have any agronomic questions as well, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head over to Minnesota. We've got Ben Ice with us right now, uh, soil mineral nutritionist at Ice's Soil Restoration. Ben, how you doing?
7: Good. How you guys doing? So.
0: Good, good. I know we've talked to you before about uh, just looking at soil tests and figuring out how many pounds of some of these things we need, or, or which nutrients we might want to put out there first. But today we're talking about where to place them and when to place them, and this gets tricky. I I would assume uh, that about every customer you've got has some different equipment and some different ideas about how exactly to get that done.
7: Well, that that is true. I mean, you got guys that are strip tailing. We do a lot of broadcasting, but. With P and K prices, now guys are asking a lot more about, you know, placing. My biggest thing is I'm okay with placing. It's just a matter of you're feeding the crop more than you're fixing the soil from that side of things. And then the other thing to really look at is how much chloride you're slapping in the band because too much chloride without sulfur balance can be a problem. So I see that a lot in guys' mixes.
0: So. Hey, you mentioned sulfur, too, and that's another one that we, we've just gotten so much feedback from growers that, wow, my sulfur wrecks have really changed over the last 10 years, and I'm finding a benefit. I, I would say almost almost 100% of growers we talked to are saying, I'm finding a benefit adding a little bit more sulfur. What are you saying? You get to cover quite a broad area and a lot of different crops. Are you seeing sulfur getting put in a lot more of the wrecks?
7: Well, the biggest thing is people realizing you need sulfur for so many different reasons. Not only be- besides digesting residue, you know, it's like one of the one of the one of my mentors always said it was the oil of the soil. It's kind of the nickname of it. But you know, you just use it for so many different things. <clears throat> when you're using sulfur, you're putting oxygen in soil. You are um, helping with the different oil contents and things for soybeans and all those oil-based kind of things. You are. Um, just helping the soil work better. And so looking at our protein levels in our corn and just look from a feed analysis, they went down how much, and a lot of that we need sulfur to help build everything right.
0: We're talking a little bit about the timing of of applications as well, and I know you work with irrigated growers, you work with growers that have dry land situations, and let's face it, there's been a big chunk of the country here that's had a a pretty rough drought over the last couple of years, and I I get it, it's different in areas, but uh, certainly a lot of growers you've worked with have had dry weather. How do you deliver nutrients on time, in the right quantities, when it's too dry?
7: Well, the biggest thing we look at on that is, okay, what's um, what's going on with how much residual nitrate you're going to have? That's something you want to look at. Um, and sulfur-wise, you want to look at, have you had enough water to make it work and do what it needs to do? If you haven't, you got to be careful on not over-applying things. And like anything else, when we don't have water, things move slower. And so you just kind of have to repace yourself and manage through that. And a lot of times, I mean, thank goodness, you guys just got a bunch down there. I heard from one of my fellow growers down there this morning. So it's good you guys are getting more moisture down that way, which is nice to hear. So
0: yeah, we'll take um, it. I, I wish it would come help. like in March and April. May, well, maybe not April, but March, late March, when we didn't have to scoop it. That'd be even more fun. But I guess we'll take well, whatever we can get. Understandable. <laughs> well, we're talking fertilizer placement and timing today, and we're visiting with Ben Ice. Uh, ben, other thoughts you had coming into uh, this discussion?
7: Um, the biggest thing is, is, you know, if, if guys are looking at their micros, you can put some in the strips, but you gotta be really careful because you don't want to over apply specific micros, especially boron. Um, if you don't have good calciums, um, that can become an issue, a toxicity issue. Um, zinc will work in there. Copper, you gotta be careful with. Manganese for sure will work in the strip. Um, it just, it just depends on the situation. And then the other thing is, even though we're dry and everything's going on out there, everybody needs to watch their calciums and make sure even in this, even in the strip till setups, we should be placing, you know, so much calcium, whether it's 50, it could be anywhere from 25 to 100 pounds of, you know, Pell lime or gypsum in the strip. We can do that. That'll help us. So if we need it.
0: Excellent. Interesting ideas. And we think about calcium, super, super important nutrient out there and and one that I know many growers are are not looking at. We're looking a lot at NPK and sulfur and we need to keep calcium in mind too. Uh, Ben, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Look forward to seeing you here later this winter.
7: All right. Sounds good. You guys have a great day. Take care.
0: You as well. Let's head down to Arkansas. Got Trent Roberts on with us right now, fertility specialist at the University of Arkansas. How are you doing, Trent? i'm doing well how
6: are you guys doing
0: pretty good pretty good you know we get a lot of snow up here we we'd love to send it your way Trent. i guess maybe it'll come down the river eventually to you
6: well coming down the river would be good because you know the barge traffic has been pretty slow and and we rely on that very heavily to get our our fertilizer up to arkansas
0: you bet. You bet. Well, we're, we're waiting on that warm up up here. The global warming thing just hasn't hit us enough yet that, that South Dakota is very warm until we get to, <laughs> to March and April, but it'll be coming. It'll be coming. Hey, we're talking fertilizer and you mentioned uh, the barges and those kinds of things. And, and eventually we'll get the fertilizer in place one way or another. When we talk about placement and timing, uh, what are some of the key things going on down in the state of Arkansas now? And, and what are some of the practices growers are, are using to try to be more efficient?
6: I think, you know, Arkansas is very unique um, in the sense that we have a huge aerial applicator industry, um, which is kind of a residual effect of our rice production system. And one thing that that really does for us is uh, it gives our producers the opportunity to do a lot of things in season that I think a lot of other portions of the country aren't uh, able to do. And one thing that we've really impressed on our growers the last few years is, you know, pre-plant fertilization may not be as efficient as, as in-season applications. And so the fact that we have these applicators that are able to do in-season applications um, pretty effectively, we're really trying to shift our producer mindset to how can we move things in season to either increase our efficiency and our yield, or to increase our efficiency and reduce our fertilizer input costs. So, just some unique opportunity that we have due to that aerial applicator industry.
0: That is interesting. I mean, you look at different farming practices and different crops. I mean, you've got, got rice there, you've got cotton, you've got lots of different uh, crops out there. you get growers that will even do double cropping. And when we think about that, that, that presents lots of different challenges.
6: Well, it certainly does. And it's simplistic, but it's convenient. You know, you you don't know how many times you'll talk to a producer and you'll say, uh, you know, this field of soybean could really benefit from a potash application. And it's like, well, I can't get my ground application through there. Let's see if my pilot's available. And, you you know, that's just a a mechanism that's there and available that in a lot of regions is not. Um, But, you know, the one thing that I've really tried to to impress upon our growers lately is just the idea that there's no carbon copy answer when it comes to timing and placement or rate and source. And, you know, as you change one of those variables like rate, then that has a profound impact on the placement and the timing aspect. And so you just really have to think of those four R's of nutrient management as being very intertwined and, and liquid in the sense of when you adjust one or the other, it's, it's going to impact, you know, the other two components
0: as well. Yeah, that is for sure. It all, it all ties together. And, you know, for, for growers, you see a lot of growers doing things, uh um, with the planter now and you mentioned those those early season applications you probably don't want to throw your whole uh, load out there but certainly some growers are trying to get a little bit to get started what do you see for sampling do you see a lot of guys doing more in-season sampling trying to time this out or do you think they're making their decision up front that i'm going to put 50 pounds on here and 50 pounds at a certain growth stage
6: well, I'm going to brag a little bit. You know, here in Arkansas, we've developed a couple of tools that have really facilitated the the use of more in-season decision-making. So the first thing is we have what we call a potash rate calculator that uses soil testing, um, yield goals, and potash fertilizer price to basically get the most economical pre-plant rate Um, And then we've developed some in-season tissue sampling to where our producers feel much more comfortable now, you know, relying on those in-season diagnostic tests to make decisions and ensure that they're not losing yield.
0: That is awesome. I I love the additional testing uh, to give you good ideas where to invest your dollars. Trent Roberts with the University of Arkansas. Thanks, Trent.
5: It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get
1: out of it depends on what you put in and Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutritia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen
3: methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us.
0: If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plan, you think you could cut your farm's fertilizer expenses? Maybe you could increase your yields. Why not both? I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're devoting two full days to our Ag PhD Soils Clinic this year, January 10th and 11th at the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the two most important days you spend in your farming career, and it's free. So register now at agphd.com. This season, get medieval on Rhizictonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA.
3: Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizictonia. Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit Valent.com Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions.
0: Get the most out of every acre of your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting several free workshops throughout January and February with seven full days of events on the docket, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, a tiling clinic, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information that we can't wait to share. And best of all, these events are free. Register today at agphd.com. Your crop deserves the best, not
3: just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a Champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash uscrop.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to AgPhD Radio, and we've gotten a number of soil samples sent in here that we're going to dive into in a little bit um, in the AgPhD mailbag time here. You can send us soil samples or you can send questions in radio at agphd.com. You can certainly give us a call at 844 442 4743 as well. I got this email that came in here from Jason and he said, I'm in East Central Iowa and I've got access to swine and cattle manure. we a livestock farm, but I took your advice and I had the land that I own soil sampled at 1.25 acre grids. I grow primarily corn and soybeans with a few acres of other things occasionally. I got a couple of fields here. Uh, one's a bigger field, and uh, I, I broke down all those nutrient levels here and kind of put them in a summary. The other one is a, a smaller field that has similar similar fertility, just slightly less fertility than the other field, but, but mostly the same. Uh, Just kind of looking for any ideas, if anything stands out or anything you should be addressing.
1: Well, the first thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is on the 135-acre field, and Darren did a great job giving me a little summary here rather than looking at all these maps and trying to decipher through all that. But here, here are my two examples. Your phosphorus, your P1 level, ranges from 32 parts per million to 270 parts per million. Your potassium ranges from 111 parts per million to 932 parts per million. So let's put it this way. If you've got a P1 phosphorus of 270 and a K of 932, you don't need any more P or K for years. And if you put more, especially phosphorus, but maybe even potassium out there, well, yeah, even the potassium, you're going to hurt your yield rather than help it. But... In the same field, you're down to 32 parts per million of P1 and 111 parts per million of K. You need P and you need K in those spots. So this is why we like the small grids. You find the variability. Now you can work on evening things out in that field. And you should be able to save yourself a ton of money on fertilizer and put the fertilizer in the right spots. Now, if you say, well, I'm running manure there are a lot of manure rigs that can do the same thing. Now you can variable rate manure. We're doing it even on our farm. So if you want to, they can skip over those areas that have all this fertility or whatever. All I'm saying is start putting the stuff in the right spots. That's the first thing. The next thing is, yeah, there are certainly some levels where we go, "Uh, that's a little, that's a little concerning. Like I just said, when we're down to 32 parts per million on a P1. It's not horrible, but you're right at the borderline of where we go. You better have more if you want top yields. The K level, you're at the low 3% and 111 parts per million. That's that's just too low. You're, you're absolutely hurting yourself. You're at risk for lodging. You got a lot of concerns there. So I, I would say one of the good things here is like sodium. It's only 0 to 1% for our range. That's great. So in other words, you haven't been overdoing it putting so much manure on that it's building up your sodium level at least so great job there but then i go to the micronutrients and i say boy we've got some really low levels we also have some very high levels but we're we're clear down to a half a part per million on boron and then the thing that concerns me when we get these high phosphorus levels is low zinc and low copper We've got a soils clinic coming up next week on Tuesday and Wednesday. And for anybody listening, we'd love to have you join us. Just go to agphd.com to learn more. But we'll show you data off thousands and thousands of data points on our farm where the phosphorus level is one thing we can talk about, but it's that ratio of phosphorus to zinc and the ratio of phosphorus to copper. And that was the key thing to yield. So anyway, it's super interesting stuff. But yeah, when you're down to 2.1 parts per million of copper and you have some high levels of phosphorus, that's hurting you. What's probably hurting you even more is 2.9 parts per million on zinc. We want that phosphorus to zinc ratio somewhere around 10 to 1. And actually in a Malik 3 test, we're finding that our optimum might be 6 to 1 or 8 to 1, something like that. With copper, somewhere around 30 to 1, doesn't have to be exactly that, even if it's 40 to 1 or whatever, it's not that big a deal. But you want to keep your copper and, and zinc levels up especially when you have high phosphorus. With boron, if you've got a lot of calcium out there, then we want to get our boron levels at least certainly higher than your low, which is 0.5 parts per million. So those are just my general comments as I I take an overall look here. And then finally, I'd say your soil pH, which is actually always the first thing we look at, your range is 5.6 to 7.7. 5.6 isn't terrible, just a hair low. But you're going to want to address that. We're finding at a 5.6 pH, our corn yields are probably nipped 10 to 20%. That's a big deal, especially with today's commodity prices. When you're at a 7.7 pH, you want to make sure you have great drainage. And if you do, you could start adding maybe a little elemental sulfur or just at least look at what's out of balance in those high pH spots. You can still have fantastic yield at 7.7 pH. Don't let anybody tell you any different. But you got to manage it definitely different then you manage your 5.6 pH ground. Oh, and by the way, again, for all our listeners, that's all in the same field. (laughs) All these highs, these lows, that's why we talk so much about please do a good job soil testing and please, at least one time, go to really small grids and find out what's actually going on there rather than taking the average. Because when you take the average, all you're going to do is you're going to short yourself on half the field. You're going to be too long in the other half. It's a waste and a waste and not a very efficient use of your fertilizer dollar.
0: All right, thanks for the question. Get this one from Shane in Pennsylvania. If I spread a blend with elemental sulfur in that blend, how long do I have before I lose the sulfur in it? Does it need to be spread in front of the planter, or how long will the
1: elemental sulfur be available uh, before planting? Well, the elemental sulfur could be available in a couple of weeks, and it could be available in five to eight years. So there is an unbelievable difference in elemental sulfur products, and it certainly matters how much moisture you have and heat and how, how much microbial activity you have. We talk about this all the time with elemental sulfur. We see people who We'll, we'll take what we talk about and we, cause we say elemental sulfur can lower soil pH and they go, well, I threw a bunch of elemental sulfur out and I didn't have any change. And then you come to find out, well, they didn't tie all their ground first and they got heavy soil. Well, of course it's not going to work. Then you have to have tremendous bacterial activity in that soil and those bacteria, you know what they need to survive air. if They don't have air. They're dead. And then your elemental sulfur turns to hydrogen sulfide instead of hydrogen sulfate like it should, and your soil smells like rotten eggs. So before you ever use elemental sulfur, to any degree. I mean, if you're going to use 20 pounds or 50 pounds, who yeah, cares? Yeah, if it's, if it's low but, rates, that's, right, that's no a big different deal. story. That's a different deal. So, yeah, if in your case, all you're talking about is I'm just going to put a little bit on to try to provide some sulfur for my crop. Having some elemental sulfur out there is great because it's kind of a controlled release sulfur. But if you don't have a small particle size and something that dissolves fairly quickly in water, it might not come available at all this year.
0: So the other part
1: of that was just, can they lay it on top? Does it need to get tilled in? Those kinds of things. No, because sulfate, once it gets into the sulfate form, is leachable. Now, if you've got highly erodible land and you just tilled the heck out of it last fall, so in other words, there's dirt that could blow away or wash away, well, something that isn't going to move down in the soil immediately, yeah, that could wash down the hill and that's a problem. Okay, I don't care what nutrient we're talking about. But, Elemental sulfur just laid on the soil surface, I'm fine with that. We do that on our farm. Works okay. There's no problem if you want to go that way because, again, sulfate will move fairly well in the soil. We usually say sulfate moves at about half the pace of nitrate in the soil in terms of leachability. All right. So their feeling, too, just judging by the question, is if it's going to take
0: some time for that elemental sulfur to become available— would I be ahead putting it out there say in March as opposed to say in late April when we're planting or is it not going to make that much
1: difference? I don't think it's going to make that much difference because let's be honest if it's March and the ground is halfway frozen and it's super cold I mean how much how, how much are those bacteria working then? They're not so it's not going to change a whole lot. The biggest thing that is going to make a difference for you is and what we tell people all the time if let's say you got three different choices three different suppliers of elemental sulfur get a small sample from each one of them put it in a little jar with water shake it around and then come back the next day and see when you shake it around again if it still sounds like rocks or if it looks like it actually dissolved and that will to find the one that dissolves quickly that's what you want then it'll start breaking down right away but it will still take time for it all to break down stay tuned we'll be right back
3: It's planting season, race-against-the-clock season, mistakes-can't-happen season, and no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster, that makes your spacing and depth more accurate, and that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gainground.
0: How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market, claiming to improve soil health and plant development. There's a lot to sort through. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Thursday, January 12th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com back you're listening to ag phd radio broadcasting from the morton studio today our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD and you can always email us radio at agphd.com got this in from matt over in illinois he said guys i've got non-gmo soybeans and i'm wondering is there a dry granule or prill herbicide that we could spread with ammonium sulfate and humate ahead of a soil finisher for pre-emerge control.
1: Now, the other thing you could do, too, Brand, would be impregnate a herbicide on the fertilizer, please don't do potentially. That. Yeah, please don't do that. That gives you poor control. Okay, so a couple of things. We'll talk about Darren's thing in just a second. But let me first say... Oh, that's not yes. Darren's thing. I'm just saying no, that's something your question, that people do. Yes, yes, I know. Anyway, Sonalan and Trifluralin, there are granules, so yes, you could spread those. But But that's not going to be enough. So I'll just... Let me let me speak to you like you're my farmer, I'm your agronomist, and I would tell you don't even dream about planting non-GMO soybeans without the three pre's. And I'm dead serious. I, I mean, you have to have amazing pre-emerge weed control or you are in big-time trouble in non-GMO beans. Get a yellow out there. That means trifluralin or prowl, metribuzin, and either Valor Authority as a PPO. And don't skimp on the rates on me either. You have to use those. So again, I'm speaking to you as a farmer, like I I would as if, let's say, I'm your agronomist and you're the farmer, I'm I'm going to be adamant. I would not even let you plant those non-GMO beans without the three pre's. And you can't get metribuzin and you can't get Valor Authority in some dry prill that you're going to mix with AMS and all that stuff. So don't even screw around with it uh, just go the three pre's, liquid, spray it. You're going to be happy. The weed control is going to be amazing. Plus the fact that the yellows are cheaper in the liquid anyway. Now, to Darren's question, what people ask us is impregnating. Please don't ever impregnate either. Again, I'm going to speak to you. I'm your agronomist. You're my farmer. I'm going to tell you no possible chance would I ever let you impregnate anything because your coverage, your spray coverage is not going to be as good. It's just not because you think about it. How many droplets will cover an acre when you go spray? I mean, I don't even know what the number would be, but it'd be, I assume, trillions and trillions as opposed to when I have dry granule fertilizer now think of how few pellets are actually out there and how much worse the spray coverage is i'm just guessing because i don't know the numbers i haven't run them but i'd say you're going to have a hundred times better coverage with the liquid and that's the reason why the performance is better with the liquid than it is whenever you impregnate any herbicide so again I'm just talking to you, if I'm the agronomist, you're the farmer, I'd say don't ever even dream about not planting non-GMO soybeans without the three pre's, and please don't ever impregnate, because you're just going to complain about it later, it's not going to be good. So what we try to talk about all the time here on Ag PhD is we want to figure out how do we best invest your dollars, or my dollars, because we farm a lot of ground too, we farm 3,500 acres, we want to figure out how we best invest those dollars to give us the maximum return with the least amount of hassle also, because we want stuff to work. And impregnation, in my opinion, doesn't work. Planting non-GMO soybeans without the three pre's, it doesn't work. You're not going to be happy. Can I be any more adamant about that, Darren? Well, you always (laughs) leave
0: things... uh, A lot of gray area there, yeah. 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 Okay, Uh, (laughs) thanks for the question, Matt. Really appreciate that. Uh, I get this from T-Man who says, guys, we are raising string beans uh, and just kind of curious, nobody seems to know much about weed spray and soil nutrition on some of these vegetable crops. Could you guys do a vegetable crop show someday and focus on some of these crops
1: like string beans? Oh, you didn't give me any advance so I could uh, work on that. Let's bring that question up later in the week and we can, we can get more specific into his question for weed control in string beans. I need just a little bit of, need just a little bit of time on that. Okay. Uh,
0: I get this one from Dan. He said, Hey guys, I noticed some green equipment driving across on your show. Where the heck have I been? Did you guys switch to green iron or do you just have a little bit?
1: Um we have we have some green and we actually always have had some green. So we and it's just it's honestly it's kind of like when people ask us, well, what do you use on your farm for herbicide or what kind of tillage practice or whatever? We, we, we like use about everything, we try about everything because we look at our farm and I, I know our guys that work for us on the farm don't really like this or appreciate this because we make them go through a lot of hassle, learn a lot of different things because it's a lot harder when you farm with many different brands of equipment, when you're trying new things all the time, you plant something different or try some different herbicide or do some different combination in almost every field. So it gets to be an awful lot of work for the people on our farm. I appreciate what they do, though. But, uh, yes, we've actually had some green forever. Thanks for the question. Thanks for watching the show, too. We really appreciate that. Hey, let me make one more comment here real quick because I was just thinking about this this morning. Somebody brought up, you know, all the snow that we got to move and everything else, and I go, you know— our guys now that work for us on our farm and our business here, I mean, they have such fantastic equipment. You think about what we used to have years ago to move the snow like this. You didn't have fancy snow blowers, you know, that are that are massive that can go on tractors, and we didn't have the great big stuff we do today to to push snow. Um, I mean, even we we got a little snow blower that goes on a lawnmower that guys can use right next to the buildings. You can't be next to the buildings with great big equipment or you ding up the building and just all these mechanical things we have now that are amazing. And like our guy, that's going to be literally in the tractor for two days straight with the snowblower. I got to be honest, I don't feel too sorry for him. He's in a fancy cab and a brand new tractor with an amazing snowblower. And it's awesome. And there are a lot of great brands of equipment out there. And so, and, and you know, this is one of the things, too, where a lot of farmers I used to work with 30 years ago, 20 years ago, some of them are still hanging on and they're they're getting up there in age now. But a lot of them go, it's hard for me to quit because the equipment is so amazing to what I used to have. It's unbelievable. Now, granted, the price tag is also incredible, but you look at the technology on there with this new equipment, it is It's fantastic. The big thing that we talk to to farmers about, just as a general statement here, is we want to try to figure out how do we make that stuff pay on the farm? So that's where we come back to variable rate technology. Um, even auto steer and things like that. And you might think, well, how could that possibly make a farmer money? Like for us on our farm, we do a bunch of strip-till. That became possible because of the technology on the equipment. So now we can put the strip-till out in the fall. We can plant directly over it in the spring. We can follow the track better because the better we follow the track, the better the yield. So there are a lot of these things where if you just use the technology right, it it actually even with a high cost it does still make sense so anyway it's just exciting the stuff we get to use because i think about what we used even when we were kids and a lot different than what we have today yeah that's for sure all
0: right, uh, get this question from Travis up in Alberta, and he said, Guys, I'm in western Alberta, and I'm having a hard time finding any ag lime up here. They want $635 per acre. It's, it's kind of crazy. So I'm curious what you think about pelletized lime. It seems a lot more reasonable in cost. Uh, could, I, could I utilize pell lime and bring things up a little more slowly, but also do it where I get a little better return on investment?
1: Well, you always have to look at return on investment. So honestly, if it's me, I might run the numbers on both. I might try a little bit of both. The other things we'd encourage you to consider are there are other sources. Like for us, we use water treatment lime. Maybe there's a water treatment plant that's somewhere near you that's trying to get rid of the the lime that they have. Make sure you test it so it doesn't have like egregious levels of heavy metals or anything. But typically it's fine and it's a great product. Also, like around us, there are sugar beet plants. They have sugar beet lime. I don't know what else is around you, but I'd be asking around more, look around more beyond the ag lime. Pell lime is certainly fine. It just, it it does get kind of costly, but it's a really good product and you can spread it with your own dry spreader. Thanks for the
0: question. Got this one from Tim over in Minnesota. He said, guys, is it too late to sign up for your soils clinics that you have coming up? Do you need much advance notice?
1: No, we don't. Um, Preferably, I mean, it's nice if you sign up a few days in advance just so we have enough food. We we ran into this with a meeting we were doing earlier, uh, or actually toward the end of 2022, up in North Dakota where, like, Within the 24 hours beforehand, we had more than half the people sign up. So it's like, okay, we're scrambling a little bit for food and seats and everything else. But we always make it work. We have a tremendous facility at the Morton Center right at the Ag PhD Field Day site where we're hosting the Soils Clinic. We can hold 1,000 farmers there. We aren't going to have 1,000 farmers there. So obviously we've got the room. We'll have the food. Just show up. But yeah, if you can sign up even a little bit in advance, that'd be great.
0: Well, thanks for listening to today's program, and be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.